Please open your Bibles to Luke 12, verses 49 through 53. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 871. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, which is a translation that Pastor Wes Holland will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. John, when he volunteered to read, did not know that it was going to be this passage. What a passage. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, help us to understand what it means that you cast fire down upon the earth and that uh, you said that you were eager for for that fire to be kindled. God, I ask that you would help us to receive your word with uh, faith and trust. Um, In fact, I pray that uh, as we uh, hear this uh, strange and difficult passage, that you would uh, ratchet down our love for you. We ask in your name. Amen. Now, When people in our culture think of Jesus, what image might come first to their mind? Many are likely to think of a child uh, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Others might picture Jesus hanging on a cross, although most would have little uh, idea why he would be on that cross except for maybe a vague understanding that he came to die for our sins. Uh, But I would guess that most would have a mental image of Jesus as dressed in a white robe with children gathered around him and maybe holding a little lamb in his arms. You've seen those kinds of pictures many times, I'm sure. Are these representations of Jesus accurate? Um, leaving aside questions about the second uh, commandment, we'll, uh, I'll just say Jesus indeed was born into this world as an infant. He did die an awful death on the cross, and he did welcome children to be brought to him that he might bless them. The pictures of him holding the lamb are... Um, are representations of the fact that he's the good shepherd and he shepherds his little lambs. 
But these pictures or these images do not paint the whole picture of his character. In fact, these images, because they've become so ingrained in the minds of culture, they serve to give a distorted idea of who Jesus really is and what he came to do. As J.I. Packer so uh, famously said, a half-truth posing as the whole truth is a complete untruth. And so a half-truth about Jesus learned in isolation, learned without learning about his entire character, or as Tim uh, said earlier, his attributes um, will give us a distorted picture of Jesus. I don't think I need to tell you, but I'll say it anyway. There's a considerable gap between the Jesus of popular culture and the Jesus of the Bible. The world believes in a Jesus who is love, 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 who accepts everyone and every point of view, who practices non-judgmentalism and values unity and harmony to the exclusion of any moral standards. Uh, this view is so perverted, in fact, that Jesus' own followers are often portrayed in our society as hateful bullies. Uh, in the minds of a vast swath of our culture, it is the morally correct thing to hate and despise and cancel Christians because we are thought of to be following a false Jesus since we are so out of step with the politically correct or politically approved version of Jesus. To proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. To preach that no man or no person is able to come to the Father except through him. To, to declare that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given among men by whom we must be saved. To believe and declare these things is to be accused of being narrow-minded and bigoted. And if you publicly dare to take a moral stand against the politically approved topics of the day, you're likely going to be accused of hate speech. Most of these politically approved topics are very closely related to sexuality and sexual identity. And unless I be uh, unclear, let me name just a few of these politically approved topics. Abortion on demand as birth control is murder. Not metaphorically, but literally murder, according to the Bible. Homosexuality is a sin. The Bible calls it a perversion. In fact, we could run down the whole list of sexual identities represented in the, the LGBTQ+. Uh, an acronym and say the same thing. I will pause on one issue that doesn't get as much uh, attention, and that is sex outside the marriage relationship. 
sex outside the marriage relationship has become very culturally accepted. Couples from outside the church, they come in um, to see me to inquire about being married in our church because they've heard we've got a center aisle. And people, the, the brides love coming down the center aisle. And they are always shocked that I would bring up the fact that they are living together as being sinful. What an outdated idea. Uh, the Bible is very clear about this. Just because society accepts it, God does not. Here are a few passages from the New Testament. Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6. For you, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Hebrews 13.4 Let the marriage... Uh, bed be held in honor among all, and let, I'm sorry, let marriage be held in, in honor above all, among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Revelation 21.8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I remember when I read that the first time, and I was shaken to my knees. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there is hope for people who have found themselves in that position, for people who have put themselves in that position, because Paul continues on in verse 11. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. There is forgiveness for all of the sins mentioned here in this list of uh, Bible verses. There is forgiveness of sins for any and every sin. The Lord Jesus came and died for sinners. Flee to Him. Find refuge in Him. Be justified before God through Him. Have your sins eternally forgiven through your Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and while I'm mentioning all this, I should also mention that the Greek, trans, Greek word translated sexual immorality is the Greek word uh, pornos, from which we get pornography. Pornography, it goes without saying, falls into the scope of the same judgment promised for all those 
who will not repent. I'm guessing that many of you might be feeling uncomfortable listening to this. We don't hear this often in our culture. Such has been the cultural badgering of Christians uh, over the past decades. Uh, we are made, to be, made out to be bad people because we dare speak biblical truth to, to cultural perversity. We're no better than anyone else. We are all sinners. The ground is level at the feet of the cross. But as God's people, we must speak God's word. Not just a preacher from the the safe confines of the pulpit as I'm preaching uh, literally to the choir and to the rest of you out uh, on the... the, um, the internet as well, but generally a friendly crowd. Why did I spend half the sermon talking about this? Well, let's look at the beginning of our text. Verse 49, I, Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. The fire that Jesus came to cast on earth is the fire of judgment. Uh, This is in keeping with what John the Baptist said about Jesus in uh, Luke 3, verses 16 and 17. Remember when John the Baptist was preaching? He said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Fire is a common metaphor for God's judgment in the Bible because it has a twofold effect. Fire always consumes or purifies. The fire of God's judgment will certainly consume. We will certainly eternally consume the ungodly with unquenchable fire. But at the same time, it will have that purifying effect for those who flee to Jesus for refuge. You know, I remember when I became a Christian during my uh, freshman year in college. There was an immediate purifying effect that took place within my soul. The things that I wanted the things that I dreamed about having, the the things that I had given myself to as the highest goals, all those things became disgusting to me. I no longer had any taste for them. My life was turned upside down, or I could say um, more accurately, right side up. Jesus had baptized me with his purifying fire, the Holy Spirit, who changed and transformed me. But all who are outside of Christ and die in their sins will receive his consuming fire. Not only that, but Christ casts fire on the earth in judgment upon unrighteous nations and cultures. Uh, You could read uh, Isaiah chapters 13 through 23 if you doubt uh, God's inactivity 
in judging the nations. That whole section of Isaiah uh, is devoted to God's judgment on Edom, on Babylon, on uh, Assyria, on and on and on. Nations rise up uh, against nations as part of the outworking of God's righteous judgment. Uh, I think it's a, a Christian reading of history uh, would point to our own civil war for a lot of unrepentance that went on in our own nation. World War One, World War Two in in uh, Europe, uh, as Europe wholesale. Um, opted for uh, the, the Enlightenment rationalism and kicked God out of the way. We could go on. Uh, and here in our passage, I think Jesus is first of all, not exclusively, but first of all, referring to Jerusalem as Jerusalem was conquered in a very savage manner by Rome within 40 years of Jesus' death and resurrection uh, as judgment against his covenant-breaking people. In fact, the Bible overtly says that that was the case. The ungodliness and spiritual adultery of the Jews simultaneously uh, broke Jesus' heart. Remember, I think it's in Matthew 19, he's weeping over Jerusalem. But it also kindled his wrath. That's why he says in verse 49, Would that it were already kindled. Our Lord Jesus is a righteous king. His soul hates unrighteousness and injustice. Listen to Isaiah's description of Christ's kingdom. It says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Our Lord Jesus and his, his kingdom is absolutely committed to righteousness and justice. In Psalm 85, uh, verse 10, the psalmist says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Righteousness and peace kiss each other in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even as his wrath is kindled, his mercy is stirred. That's what's happening in verse 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. The baptism that Jesus is referring to is his death on the cross. The wrath of God was going to be poured out on his head because he was going to receive in himself the full and unmitigated fury of God's wrath in our place. He was our substitute. He went to the cross, bore God's wrath for us. The cross itself was awful, but the wrath of God 
is what he is talking about here when he talks about dread or distress. Kent Hughes says the artful butchery and the prolonged torture were not what distressed him, but rather the necessity of taking on the raw sewage of our sins so that he, in effect, would choke and drown in it. In other words, as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Yet, even though it caused him great distress, even dread, remember he said, not uh, not my will but your will be done, as he asked if the cup could be taken away from, from him, because the anticipation of being separated from his father and enduring his father's wrath in our place was so awful. Yet he set his face towards the cross with full determination. Everything in his being strained toward the cross as his public ministry began to draw to a close. And we're going to see here in Luke um, that chapter 12 and on, the, the, the pace of the book is going to slow, and we're going to see as he's taking one step closer to Jerusalem, one step closer to his betrayal, one step closer to the crucifixion, that his, his mind and every energy in him is focused on getting to that cross. Why was he so determined to go to that awful cross? Well, there's only one reason. It's because he loves us so much. Because he loves you so much. He drank the bottomless cup of God's wrath because he desired our salvation. Hebrews 2, I'm sorry, Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our Lord Jesus had such great joy in front of him that he despised the shame and endured the cross. What was that joy? That joy was you, and you, and you. You are that joy that caused him to set his face towards the cross. Now I'm trying to move quickly toward a conclusion, but I haven't dealt with verses 51 through 53 yet, and so I'll try and be brief. The twelve disciples, against everything that Jesus had been teaching them, they still had these visions of grandeur. You know, the crowds, this particular crowd, we've been looking at this, this is still the same sermon from back in, Uh, that started back in uh, chapter 11. And the crowd's been gathering all morning and all afternoon, uh, probably into the tens of thousands, to come hear him preach. And the disciples, well, they're basking in the glory of Jesus' popularity. And here in verse 51, Jesus throws cold water on them. Jesus, well, I'll read verse 51. Do not think that I have come to give peace on earth. 
No, I tell you, but rather division. See, Jesus is going to necessarily bring division because he calls for a decision to be made, if you will. He calls you to deal with him. He is uh, the Lord of all mankind. He is the only Savior. And so all people, every person that is born, has an obligation to him. And people will either flee to him or rebel against him. One of those two. There's no neutral territory. That's why he is going to bring division. Because he doesn't give you a little safe space where you don't get to think about Jesus. Because even if you are not thinking about him, not acknowledging him, he is still the Lord. His Bible is still true even if you do not acknowledge it to be so. Unequivocally, Jesus says that he is the only way, the truth, and the life. He says, no man comes to the Father except through me. In our relativistic culture, um, this is jarring to the senses. Very plainly, he calls himself the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He is the Son who is referred to in Psalm 2 where it says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to here uh, in this passage. He's referring back to the prophecy given in Psalm 2. He says, But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus says his word is true. He says his moral standards are the only righteous moral standards. If you think otherwise, he says you're under his wrath and curse. You must do business with Jesus. You cannot ignore him. He offers himself to you. You must follow him. Trust him, or you are under his wrath. He is the rock that will not yield or bend. You either must fall upon him for his mercy, or you will be crushed by him. By definition, then, our Lord Jesus will cause division. Now, Jesus here in verses 52 and 53 says, Uh, something that's difficult to hear and, and difficult to understand. He says, From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother in law against her daughter in law and daughter in law against mother in law. Now, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here in verses. 52 and 53, not every family will be divided. And even families that are divided won't be divided 3 to 2 or 2 to 3. Basically what he's saying is that um, he's speaking of families because families typically stick together. Blood's thicker than water, we like to say. 
And so Jesus is saying that the division that he brings will be so deep and so profound that it will even divide families. Now, there is literal truth in what Jesus is saying. Christ has brought division into families. I know many of you in this congregation who have and are suffering just great heartache and pain because of Jesus. He's brought division into your family because you're going to stick with him and others have commitments um, against him. You've tried to stay faithful to him in the face of ungodly commitments. And it's tough, especially when the division involves blood relatives that you love with all your heart. I was kind of marching around the house this morning. Normally I'm up and and, uh, out, and Mandy's like, you look a little nervous this morning. Well, this is a tough passage because I know how painful it is when you're divided from loved ones. Uh, because of the Lord Jesus. And what Jesus is telling his disciples, and what he's telling us, is to anticipate the division and embrace the battle for people's souls. Pray for them. And when you feel like you can't pray anymore, pray more. Speak the truth in love, even when they tell you we don't, they don't want to hear it anymore. He's saying, our our Lord Jesus is saying, don't be quick to keep your mouth closed. Don't be quick to accommodate the politically correct sensibilities. Don't water down the biblical truths to compromise with the world's positions. Don't shrink back from preaching Christ to avoid hurting feelings. The best way that we can love others is proclaim the gospel in all its truthful beauty. And I assume you know this, and I'll end with this. There's a lot more that I think could be said. But I imagine, even though you know this, I imagine it might be helpful to you to hear from the pulpit. Uh, Our culture calls Christians names. It tries to cancel us, to marginalize us every time we open our mouths to try and fight back using God's word. You know, the latest accusation is we are racist um, for, for whatever reason. You know, and it's, 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 a, it's a tactic that works. Nobody likes to be humiliated or cast out or canceled. Nobody likes, everybody likes to feel they're part of the in crowd. Nobody likes to be called names. This tactic is used in politics and academics. And please hear me, I'm not making a political statement here. I think people on both sides of the political divide would agree with this if they were honest. That this is a tactic that's used to divide people. So don't be cowed into submission. Don't be surprised that it's happening. Embrace the battle. 
embrace God's word. Hold on to it and proclaim it. Because Jesus Christ is the king. And he has conquered. Let's pray together. (coughs) Oh Lord our God. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he has uh, alerted us ahead of time. That there will be division. Father against son. Mother against daughter. Um, members of one's household against others and throughout society and certainly even throughout history. Lord, we have uh, seen these divides that are so deep. Oh, Lord, heal those divides by causing us to proclaim the Lord Jesus and his gospel in all its beautiful truth. We ask in his name, amen.